This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Bert Soren. So he is the president and co-owner of Sorenex Exercise Equipment. That is a business that was founded by his father, Richard Soren, in 1980. So X has been making some of the most durable strength training equipment in the industry for like four decades. So they've been around a really, really long time. So the gear that they make is utilized by athletes, service members, students around the world. And guys, you're going to recognize a lot of their equipment. If you're watching any of the Bulls highlights from their training sessions back in the 90s, Sorenex equipment was in there. If you look at stuff like in Jocko Willing's gym or Cam Haynes' gym or Joe Rogan's gym, they do that stuff. They make literally some of the best products, maybe the best workout equipment products on the entire planet. They do a tremendous job. He's also been a barbell trainer for most of his life. And we get into this in the podcast, but he's a four-time D1 All-American track and field athlete. He threw the hammer, the 35-pound weight throw. Uh, He's the SEC champion, former record holder in the weight throw at the Olympic trials. Uh, He's competed in the the Highland Games. He's an ambassador of the Global War on Terrorism Memorial Foundation. That's actually an organization that leads the effort to plan, fund, design, and build the Global War on Terrorism Memorial at the National Mall in D.C. And guys, this is one of those interviews that I tell you about from time to time that happens. Is from the very beginning, I knew that... That we were going to talk about most of the things I wanted to talk about, but then we're going to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. And so if I just look at my notes, it's going to be one of those things where it's like, well, yeah, we talked about that, but we talked about so many other things. Like we got off on so many tangents. It was so exciting to talk about it, but we did talk about the the founding of Sorenex. You know, his, his dad was a school teacher, but then he was also building playground equipment, but then he wanted to build like really customizable, really durable exercise equipment. He wanted it to be bomb proof and kind of when that really took off and when he started getting into places, but also for him, when did he become a part of the business? Like, when did he get into it? You know, he became a hammer thrower, but his track to get there was not really the direct trap. It was a pretty circuitous route to get to that moment to where he was doing those things. But the lessons he learned along the way, like that guy developed a lot of resilience along his life because he wasn't coddled. You know, he had coaches that basically gave him tongue lashings and he had other people that basically dressed him down and he used that as fuel throughout his life to get better. So we talk about Sorenex and how it's expanded over time. We talked about how he went from being a collegiate athlete to becoming an Olympic athlete, you know, and uh, not, you know, being able to do all the things he wanted to do with that, but then becoming a Highland Gaines athlete. We talked about hunting, but then on some of the the other tangents we got into, we we talked about, you know, parenting in the, in modern society and how a lot of parents kind of keep uh, these I don't know, I guess the easiest way to say it would they kind of keep struggle away from their kids and they think they're doing their kids a service that they're actually doing a, a mighty disservice. We talk about, you know, John Eldridge and some things that he learned from Wild at Heart and how that applies to how not only he does his life and his business, but how he deals with his family. We talked about the lack of rites of passage in our modern society and the lack of kids that are encouraged to be strong because of some, you know, made up thing called toxic masculinity or something like that. Guys, we went everywhere in this conversation and obviously you can see in how long it was we spent a lot of time getting into everything, but then I asked them some pretty good questions at the end with my, what would you say to someone that said segment? So guys, I really, really enjoyed my time with Bert. I think it's going to be well worth your time. So without further ado, let's get into it. Bert Soren, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, Kyle. 
Well, dude, we were having so much fun off air. I, I had to go ahead and hit the record button because I didn't want us to say all the cool stuff before we got to the audience. But there's a lot of ground to cover today, and there's a lot of really interesting things that we can talk about. But one of the prominent things about you is really your relationship with your dad and how that's kind of like weaved into a lot of the things that you've done as an adult. So to kind of set the stage, and I did set the stage a little bit in the intro, but in 1980, your dad, Richard, is a school teacher, but that wasn't his be all end all. He had a dream to build the best exercise equipment in the world. And in 1980, guys, if you can remember back that far, like there wasn't a whole lot of great equipment out there. You couldn't customize it. It wasn't very durable, but your dad's like, I don't want it to just be customizable and durable. I want it to be bomb proof. So we'll get more into kind of how that's affected your life, Bert, but let's start there. Let's start with kind of your dad, you know, just kind of, you know, tinkering with stuff to try to make the best exercise equipment on the globe. Awesome. Well, first of all, you need to be a, a PR rep for us because you you nailed it. You have a <laughs> you got you know I, the story. <laughs> I can read. I can read decent. Okay, and my my brain does remember things from time to time, so I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. No. So uh, it's interesting. On our hunting trip that I had with with pops uh, in Missouri, we were driving back and we were just talking about life and and the formidable years of like really when you're formatted as a person when your your hard drive is kind of written. And that's, I would say that's that six through 12 year age group. Mm -hmm. That's when your, your view on the world is somewhat established. And that's when obviously being a parent is so important during that time. And so a lot of the things that, that guided his life and the reasons why he did certain things were really formed during that time. And the strange thing was his, both of his parents worked very, very hard. His, his mother um, her mom died when she was 10 years old. So she and her siblings, and I believe their father died soon thereafter. So she and her siblings were kind of on their own with the older sister taking care of them. I, I want to say like 14 or 15 years old. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. So it was during that time, super hard work. <clears throat> and so she was just a hard driving person. Well, that was passed on to my dad and, and he was an only child, but one of the rules were you don't go out of the yard. And so, you know, I hate to say it, but it was kind of a crappy childhood because he's looking two and three doors down and kids playing in the yard, doing sports and all this other stuff. Well, he wasn't allowed outside of the yard. So he, and I asked him, I said, well, you didn't ever have that conversation to the why? He goes, oh, you didn't ask her why. That was just it. So I thought that was just an interesting way to look at it. And I'll, and I'll get to the reasons. So because of that, um, really TV and movies, especially movies of the era, those big epic movies, the, the African queen and like, you know, all the, the, the big, you know, King Kong and stuff like that. He would see those movies on TV and that would give him like a thirst for adventure and, and for that heroicism. Well, he also saw Hercules. That was the first movie you ever saw Hercules Unchained. So mm. <clears throat> he realized that being strong was something that, that he could go and do. Um, he was in the hospital as a kid. His dad brought it. He was bad at reading. His dad brought him some hunting and fishing magazines and also Ironman magazines, or I'm sorry, strength and health. So he started putting those aspects in his head. So when he was by himself in his yard, he realized I could lift weights by myself. And so he started writing that narrative of his life very early of, I need to be self-sustaining. I need to be capable uh, I need to be strong, all of these things. And he, of course, got bullied and, you know, like everyone else probably during that age. And he told me a story, what I guess nails like 
carpentry nails were like currency in the neighborhood because you could like build stuff with them, right? You could build mm. forts and stuff. And he said this yeah. older, older kid would steal his nails. And he <sighs> said it just drove him crazy. And he could, the older kid would make him put the kid in a, in a, in a, in a wagon and push him around the street and then steal his nails. And he, he goes like, so all I wanted to do was defend myself. So I lifted weights at home until I could defend my nails, you know? That's <laughs> and, awesome. and so, you know, he had no older brother or anything to defend him. So he's like, I just realized at that point I had to get stronger. So he lifted weights and then he realized, well, <clears throat> I want to, I need to be able to build weights because I don't have the money for it because dad was a bartender you know mom was a maitre d at a, at a uh, country club and so they didn't have a lot of cash and so he would you know pilfer railroad ties from from like down the railroad and build Olympic platforms and learn how to build things and, and that was the struggle started early on with him so to understand kind of where we went and why you kind of need to know the backstory in some mm -hmm. way and so he, he loved lifting weights and loved be, getting stronger and loved defending his nails and loved that, you know, when they started the, the presidential fitness test back in the day, he, he couldn't do a pull up. He felt like he was the weakest kid in class. And a year later, he broke the school record with him. And like, that was one of those stories of, oh, I just put effort towards this undaunted effort towards it. And things start happening positively in my life. So that occurred and then which earned him a scholarship he was the first uh kid in his high school to ever receive an athletic scholarship to throw the discus he never he never tied together that the discus prowess and his weightlifting had anything to do with each other i said mm. i was laughing i go wait so you didn't understand how being super strong would right. make this you know and he goes no i never really trained for it i just knew that when my clean went up i just threw far and i never understood why that happened and i That's go awesome. oh very very interesting so anyway, that is, so he was building weightlifting equipment and solving those problems since he was a, a small child. So that became one of the constants in his life was physical effort and capability. And that, that became a, really a, a kind of a guiding rod there as he, as he progressed and went to college and, you know, through the discus and then became a coach, became a teacher and was started building weightlifting equipment and building playgrounds actually back, back in the 70s uh, building weightlifting equipment starting in 1980 and as, as the story goes it, it, he and my mom got divorced when i was two but like the girl he was dating at the time she says richard you're killing yourself you can't be a teacher and run two businesses and she's like you gotta quit one or i'm leaving and so I was like, what'd you do? He's like, well, I just kept doing them and she left. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, and he later said, he goes, oh, she was a hundred percent right. I was just hardheaded and didn't want to be challenged. And so he eventually retired from teaching after eight years, uh, tried to run with Soren playgrounds and equipment of the times. Again, that was a little bit too much. So went back to his first love, which was strength conditioning and, and weightlifting. And so, but at the time, you know, there wasn't, big, strong equipment that was highly customizable, which was yep. made for athletes. That just wasn't a thing. Um, so he was kind of the, one of the first on the blocks to do that. You know, their hammer strength was just popping off at that time. And that was a whole different animal. Uh, there are a couple other companies out there that were doing some things, <clears throat> but what he was doing was different. And it, I don't believe any of the other companies were, were necessarily run by strength athletes uh, at the time. So that's how he started it. And it was never meant to be a large business. It was never meant to employ 200 people. It was never like none of that was ever the plan. 
<clears throat> there was never a business plan even written. It was, I love the world of strength. The world of strength has given me so much. How do I give back to that world and be relevant in a world that I, that I, that I hold in high regard? So that was really the, the catalyst and the, the driver of Sorenex since day one. The, the, there's so much there that I want to get into and we certainly <laughs> will, but you mentioned something at the very, very beginning that I want to kind of go back to. So I'm just going to kind of blow up uh, my cadence of, of questions from the beginning. You sure. I'm doing it intentionally to blow up your cadence, by the Dude, way. That's great. I'm, I'm great with my entire interview going to crap in the first 10 minutes. No, cause this yeah. is great. Like we need this to happen. <laughs> so you mentioned a very, very important time period in a child's life and a, a young boy's life, the age of like six to 12. Right. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that I've become obsessed with Bert, especially since I have a, you know, a two year old and an eight month old or whatever is rites of passage because right. in this country we don't really do that there are certain sects of certain religions that kind of do that where they say okay you're a man now and here's what the community expects of you and here's the good things about you and here's the things you're going to struggle with and here's that but for the most part everyone gets to self-initialize or, or initiate rather into manhood and so right. it's like they get to decide like oh i just had sex for the first time i'm a man oh i just moved out of the house i'm a man or oh i just you know got a scholarship to go to school or whatever the thing is they get to pick it it's not something that is developed now. Mm. And certainly, and this gets into an even bigger conversation about the overall idea of toxic masculinity, that if you are strong, not just in your body, but also in your mind and in your way of operating in the world, that that is somehow bad and deleterious to society. But to go back to, to you know six to 12 year olds, what is, I guess, is your message to dads out there that want their kids to, to, grow up to be good men, you know, godly men, strong men, whatever, uh, to, in terms of the things they can do from that age of like six to 12, because a lot of dads don't even think about it until their kid becomes a teenager. And it's not that it's too late, but it's like, man, you're, you're going to be missing some foundation there. I a hundred percent, uh, agree with you. You, you have to look at it early on. And I think it could be, I wouldn't say inception, but it has to be seen the, the kids have to see it happening. They have to be pushed into it or pulled. I shouldn't say pushed, pulled into it. So there has to already be a community and a culture of that occurring. You can't just say, go out and do hard things. Okay, dad, what are you doing? That's hard. Right. You know, I, I grew up watching my dad train in the, in the garage gym. It, insane effort was put forth. Uh, you know, blood squirting out places and and you know, passing out and the whole thing. So I grew up seeing that an extreme amount of effort and sacrifice was a good thing that was held in high regard, straining and struggling and cheering on your, your teammates and being there and getting some crap. If you didn't show up for your training partner, like guys, grown men being pissed off when their training partner didn't show up. It's not like, all right, buddy, I know you had something to do. It's like, no, I counted on you today. Where were you? And, and I wouldn't say fights, but definite strong words were had, but you realize early on, okay, you got to count on each other right? and and, and we're going to do this thing that's extraordinary and it's hard and it's dangerous and dangerous things. I believe Jordan Peter said like dangerous things done safely is how you build confidence within young people. And I remember having those little tests all the time as a kid whether it was, um, I mean, my dad since it, he did such a good job of that with me. Now, again, I didn't live with him. I only saw him on Wednesdays and every other weekend for a long time. And I was like young, but when I showed up, I have to admit 
there was always something planned that was a challenge in some way to make me better. I remember, if you know what a climbing deer stand is, it's like one yeah. that kind of ratchets itself up a tree. Well, you ratcheted up a tree. It's like a yeah. pull up, dip, pull up, dip. I didn't like heights and I still don't like heights, but I remember going there and he'd have the stand set up on the tree and I had a little orange flag surveyor's tape and that was my record. And as I would get more and more brave to go higher and higher the tree, I was allowed to move that that ribbon up higher and higher. And I would get little prizes associated with like new PRs. And I was like seven, eight years old. And, uh, you know, I remember the first time I deadlifted double body weight. That was the rite of passage as a Soren man or male. Um, the, de- the double body deadlift was, was 112 pounds. So that means I weighed 56 pounds in second or third grade. And I remember, I think I've said it multiple times, other podcasts, our teacher said, you know, we're supposed to write the happiest day of your life. And I remember standing in front of the class saying the happiest day of my life is when I deadlifted double body weight as an eight year old. And I remember the kid, the kids, even the teacher was like, I don't even know what you're saying right, right. now. What does that mean? But I gave like the progression. I was like, well, I did 88 pounds first because we were using kilo plates. And then, you know, and I look now and I'm like, wow, just that experience turned on different parts of my brain and attentiveness to uh, remember. I remember 88 pounds was my first time I did because that was a 10 kilo plate on both sides. And then there was this and there's this. And I remembered like bumping up and learning how to look inside myself and say, I think I got a little bit more or uh, no bueno that we're done. Like that was enough. And I think those early, early struggles and just micro struggles of learning that or building things with him or cutting my finger with my, one of my first knives that I think I earned a knife for climbing up the tree. So I got a Swiss army knife and I cut my finger <laughs> with it when I was building a fort, you know, cause you know, if you're a sore and your knives have to be ridiculously razor sharp because a, a dull knife is more dangerous than a sharp one. Yeah. And I cut my finger and I remember walking into the house and pops is lifting in the garage. And I'm thinking like, I'm eight years old outside with a, a razor sharp knife screwing around in the yard. Like that was fine. Okay. Yeah. You, am I going to cut myself? Sure. Eventually. But I remember walking in, I'm just pouring blood out of my hand and pops handled it so well. He looks over and he's like, he goes inside. He goes, I was freaking out. Cause I saw blood everywhere. He goes, but I knew if I freaked out that you'd freak out. And so he goes, all right, daddy will be there in a minute. And he goes, and he turned around and finished what he was doing, like the rest of the set that he was mm-hmm. lifting in the garage and walked over and calmly goes, okay, buddy, let's see what you got going on. I stayed super calm, but I look and yep. go form the formidable years of me staying stoic and calm in an, in an emergency has probably saved my life a lot of times. And so I look back and go, oh, that's there was some pain, but really a sharp knife cut isn't that painful. It's just scary. And it taught me, don't be afraid, handle your business, stay in your head, stay stoic, stay, just stay connected and controlled. There is a process to fix this. We'll fix it. Let's move on with life. And so those things early on were enormous, but there was always a wow, you'll be a man now if you do this. And there was like 50 things during my life, you know, was, mm-hmm. all those things were like, Hey, you know, you, you know, two years old, we'd go hunting or fishing. We'd be walking back and he'd act like he was lost. He goes, all right, Bert, which way do we go back? And I would have to make those choices of which ray on the road we were going. Now, a lot of times I made the wrong choice and he'd kind of bump me the right way, but I was starting to get confidence of, oh, I need to pay attention when I walk through the woods. I need to, I can make choices. My 
my actions and my choices matter to the to the livelihood and the 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 success of my family and that's a huge thing i think these days kids their actions don't have an impact on their family they're told and and, and i i'm guilty of it often myself um you know I, I was talking to my dad the other day i said you know life is so busy i tell my kids hey, get get your shoes get this get that move 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 because we're doing mm-hmm. so many things and I go, gosh, have I really recently put the success of our family in their hands and say, you know, if you don't unload the dishwasher, we're not eating dinner tonight. But there's no ramifications. There's no like real thing there. And I saw it with a friend of mine. Um, his He treated his kid the exact same, whether the, the kid was doing well in school or bad or, you know, there, there was no change. And I understand unconditional love, but unconditional response, I don't believe is a realistic thing to this world. Uh, for instance, it was back it, 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 again, sorry, I have a lot of stories, but he was pops, best friend. And they were, they were training that day. The fella showed up to train. They're supposed to train at five o'clock, four He's like, Hey, I gotta, I gotta bounce out of here. And pops like, you just got here. What, what we got to train? He goes, no, I gotta go pick up so-and-so from school. And he goes, well, you gotta pick him up after school. He goes, well, cause he had detention. He goes, well, why do you have detention? He goes, Oh, because he did X, Y, and Z. He goes, screw that. Let him walk. <laughs> yeah. Why, why does all of a sudden that on you? Why does he do something bad? And then you have to change your life and work around it for something that he did bad. And he still gets to go home and eat a nice warm dinner and get a ride from school. And now it's everyone else's problem, but his, and it was interesting. And that kid had some issues for about 10 or 15 years until he finally grew up and had some hard stuff happen. And now he's a good kid, but you look, you go, gosh, till about 25 or 30 that I watched that kid who I loved dearly and his dad loved him dearly. But those, those unconditional results. I mean, I knew if I screwed up like that, my butt was walking. It was up to me to figure out how to use like, you know, expect, expect a self-rescue kind of scenario. Mm. So I knew I didn't want to have to call my dad and tell him I was a not going to be there is I'm figuring out how to get home. And I dare wouldn't ask him to help me out because, Hey, you're the dude that screwed up. So you kind of keep it in line. So those are a lot of little things that I saw early on that were so, so valuable that I unfortunately don't believe are as common these days. When I think society puts a lot of pressure on us to coddle and then everyone just kind of goes with it and they like acquiesce. I remember, I think it was, uh, it was, a oh gosh, he played for the the Steelers. It was a Harrison, James Harrison. Uh, his boys were in like youth football and they didn't win the tournament, but they still got trophies. And he told his boys, go give those trophies back. Uh, to the people mm-hmm. that ran the tournament. And so he literally made his sons walk back up and, and give the people that ran the tournament, the trophies back. And I remember the, the collective population of the United States exploded at how horrible of a father he was for, you know, basically doing this to his children. And all I'm doing is sitting there thinking, no, they need to know that like winners get things. Losers don't like, you know, winners focus on winning losers focus on, on, on the winners. And like, that's the attitude that you have to get from that perspective and, and that young. And a lot of kids don't get that. And then you also see these pictures, like these dads, they find out that their, you know, 14 year old son was bullying a 12 year old at school. And so they take their 14 year old to a local boxing gym. They put him in the ring with a kid that's two years older than him. And you know, that, that kid kind of, you know, torches them a little bit, you know, touches them up and they're like, Oh, this is child abuse. This is terrible. But it's like, wait a minute, 
the dad knew the consequences of if his son continued in that action, right? As yes. a 14-year-old picking on a 12-year-old that's weaker and smaller than him, mm-hmm. he put him in there with a kid that he was weaker and smaller than, and it didn't go well for him. And that kid will remember that for the rest of his life. And it's not going to be this thing that's going to melt his brain. But no. there's so many dads, Burt. Like it's exactly what you said earlier on. It's about pulling your kid, not pushing your kid. Cause I know a ton of guys, they want their kids to be in shape. They want their kids to be well-read and they, they want their kids to be godly. They want all those things, but they don't exercise. Right. They don't ever red line whenever they do things. They don't do hard stuff. They don't read any books at all. They don't pray. They don't, they don't treat church as if it's a priority. And then it's like, guys, how do you put the wrong ingredients into the gumbo and expect it to turn out to be something else? Like, it's not like, where, where do you think it's going to happen? Like if they're going to be a good person, it's going to be by accident. Yes. Yes. And, or they're, yes, they're going to have some sort of input that is kind of out of your control that if they turn out to be a good person, it's either going to be by accident or you just lucked out into someone they looked up to happen to come into their life. And man, yeah. that's, that's like driving with your eyes closed it, to me. That, that sounds terrifying. Yeah. And it might work out. Okay. But it's not something that you should like operate not, and do. Yeah. I'm not banking on that situation. No, you're, you're exactly right. And you know, and I, I think the whole bullying and kids fighting thing, I have multiple, um, probably multifaceted view on, I mean, bullying, I think it's horrible, but here's the thing. Bullies are real life there are bullies and that aren't going to necessarily pick your pocket and you know beat you up on the street corner but there's bullies in every instance in life whether it's on cyber bully where there's where there's it's employers there's employees there's right. co-workers there's there's bullying all over the world so i hate to say this will probably sound horrible and then out of context and i'll get canceled and whatever I think bullies are a vital part of the world for people to interface with at some point in their life because they are out there. Now, do I wish they were all gone? Yes. But here's the fact. They're not. So to learn how to deal with bullies as early as you can in life is a really good skill to have. I personally learned how to a stand up to some of them when I was a kid and I was bullied as a kid. One of the kids that I stood up to, it was wild. Later, I was in second grade, first or second grade, real big, tall kid. He was just a monster. And he was he was a big kid. And I didn't know it at the time. He was he was pretty poor at the time. I think he had some some pretty hard stuff going on at home. I don't you don't know that when you're a second grader. You right. just know you're terrified of this guy. And he was pushing everyone out of line and doing the whole thing in the water line. And I stood up to him and I was a lot smaller. And he backed off and I didn't think anything of it. We were seniors in high school and he walked up to me, he goes, you know, Bert, I always respected you. You were the only one who stood up to me when we were kids and we were cool for 15 yeah. years after or 12, 15 years. After, and I saw him when we were 35 years old, still see him in the post office. Hey bud, how's it going? Like we're cool. And he even was still cite that. And so I think in some way I taught him something I taught myself something, but then also I look at it later through mature eyes and I feel for him. I go, what? Cause hurt people hurt people. Yeah, what sure. was he, what was he going through that maybe I should have even been more cognizant to see older that I could have helped him out. And I, and I feel good because I was always cool with him later in life when we kind of more were the same size and the whole deal. And I look and go, gosh, like 
that guy needed some love at that time. He was just acting out in that way. Um, but I also, I hate to say, I think when they made it a huge, huge deal for little kids to fight at school, as in like they're kicked out forever or they get arrested yeah. or whatever, I think they screwed up the system because I personally think let second and third graders fight because they won't fight the same person again, probably ever. Yeah. There's there, there, you know, I'm not saying just let them duke it out, but like if they get in a fight, don't make it a big deal. Don't put it on the news. Don't, you know, like you kind of have to learn how to fend for yourself and then to not be afraid to, to in confrontation, to have some courage and to not be afraid if you get roughed up a little bit, because really how bad are you going to get hurt in second grade? No, I dude, I'm with you. And, and it goes back to something you were talking about earlier with, Okay, there are bullies no matter what. So let's say you are protected by the teacher, the administrator, your parents from bullies your entire life. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you have a job where the CEO is the bully, right? There you go. And, and, and now yep. what do you do? Mm-hmm. Like you've got decades of inexperience yep. dealing with difficult people. And it's like, I went to, uh, I you know grew up in a decently rough town on a, and you know, we were in a rough neighborhood, moved to a nicer neighborhood, but I got a knife pulled on me walking home from school in like fifth grade. And I had to figure out how to get out, get around that situation. And it's like, no, I'm not going to like force my kids into situations where they may actually get, you know, uh, right. stabbed or something like that. But at the same time, it's those, those little things that you grow a little bit because me growing up, I was the bully at some points and I was bullied. And at the times when I was bullied, I was somewhat bullied mercilessly. Now it's a little different today because mm-hmm. I could leave school and the bullies would stay there. Right. Cause I could right. go home and the bullies weren't following me, but now we give our little kids these little things, these smartphones and the bullies can follow them around and, you know, bother them until two or three in the morning. And then your kid doesn't get sleep, isn't healthy, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Right. But again, we're not doing the next generation of service by keeping them away from hard things and from harm. And that's the thing is it's one thing to protect your kid from potentially getting picked up by a stranger at the park and carried off and you never see them again. And it's another thing to keep your kid from going to the park to begin with, because they might fall down. They might get a splinter. They might, you know, uh, fall off the monkey bars or something like that. It's like, it's like we have no nuance. We have no uh, gradations in, in how we operate. And it's certainly not, not doing us any favors. No, no, we're, we're creating a very um, incapable and weak generation of, of folks and, and kind of going back to the fighting thing, you know, okay, so what I, I personally believe when this, the, the fighting was so villainized, I think that's what's leading to all these shootings, part of it, part because, of it sure. because kid doesn't have a say so he has no ability to fight back until he gets so in a down wound up spot, he, he, he or she says, well, I'm going to solve this once and for all, because I can't do anything about this. I don't want to get kicked out of school. I don't want to this and that. So all this gets packed away and they get, they get victimized for years and years and years. And finally they say, screw it. Everyone's going to pay. Hey, and Bert, you mentioned Jordan Peterson earlier. He had Mm -hmm. a very interesting take on school shooters. He said what a school shooter is doing is they are proving their competence because their entire life they've been a bad student. They haven't had a lot of friends. They don't have, you know, a dad at home almost. They don't, um, they almost never have a dad at home or the dad's, you know, aloof and and not a good dad or they're on SSRIs or both. That's typically kind of how it goes. They don't have girlfriends. They're they're, they're not, you know, the bell of the ball or the the best person in, in sports or any of those things. And so all 
at once. They're going to show the world how competent they can be. And they do it in the most murderous and destructive way possible. And it's part of it. You talked about, you know, being able to move the, the orange flag up the ladder a little mm -hmm. bit further. You were displaying confidence Yes. At a, and competence rather at a very, very young age yes. because it's like, look, I was this good at this thing. Now I'm this good at this thing. Weights are kind of the easiest thing or jujitsu or something like that. It's like, okay, I was getting beat up in this position and now I don't get beat up in that position anymore. Okay. I was deadlifting this. Now I'm deadlifting this. Uh, and that's the thing that when we keep that away from our kids, because we're afraid that they're going to be harmed by it, we don't realize that we're harming them by making them weak. Another thing Jordan Peterson says, if you're scared of the damage a strong man can do, just wait until you see the damage Shoot. that a weak man can do i mean there's a lot there but go ahead and hop back in yeah you're 100 right and, and i would say the school shooters are never strong men no no of course not the, it's, uh, it's never the captain of the football team that right. has a loving family and goes to you know sunday school like it's never that kid it's never and and that's unfortunate i'm not trying to villainize those people I, again going back to hurt people hurt people they've been hurt so many times and maybe they didn't have someone standing up for them they didn't feel confident enough to stand up for themselves they weren't armed no pun intended with what they needed to be armed with early in life. And what was this the Pearl Jam song? You know, Jeremy spoke in class day. He finally spoke. He yeah. went in there and started murking people yeah. because that was, that was exactly it. I, you know, what was the, uh, the book wild at heart? One of my favorite books yeah. talks about the, the two, the two holes in a man and a woman's heart is a man says, am I good enough? They're, they're wondering, do there is confidence. Am I good enough? And when that it's taken from someone or never developed, oh my gosh, there's destruction in every direction. And that's yeah. what I look back to. And that's where weights are, like you said, the easiest thing. They're they're numerical. They're they're I yeah. picked up a hundred pounds today. I picked up a hundred and two pounds. I am two pounds better than I was yesterday. Right. This is super binary, super simple and linear. And that's the nice part because there's really no nuance in there mixed in. It's like, oh, well, yeah, this guy was had a bad day. Nope. You picked up more weight. You are better than you've ever been right now. And that is such a really nice, streamlined, hardship, basic thing for a kid to learn early on. Um, or, or how many pull-ups could do, push-ups, whatever those yeah. may, may be. Uh, it's it's so, so vital. I, I, I can't say it enough. When, and you brought up John Eldridge, so obviously uh, everyone that listens to the show, he's been on this show more than any other person's been on this show. He's a personal oh, mentor of mine. Yeah, oh, so like, I'll please, you, please I'll tell you him. Like, oh, I would love it. I gave all of my groomsmen a copy of Wild at Heart 12 years ago, 13 years it, ago. Maybe about eight years ago, I gave every man in my family a copy of Wild at Heart uh, for, for Christmas. But in that book, it's like, you know, yes, the the two questions, like, do I, do I have what it takes? And yes. do you delight in me? Right. Yes. And so it's yes. like, so Do if you you're a dad, me? yeah. So, so let's, let's take the, the, the weight description because that's obviously going to be a major through point in today's discussion. So your child was able to do, you know, uh, two pull-ups and now a month later he can do four pull-ups. And I mean, that's, you can look at it any way you want to look at it. Okay. It's mm -hmm. only four, or you can look at it as a doubling. And so mm -hmm. as a father, right, when you look at it, does he have what it takes to do a pull-up? Yes. And you affirm that, but then yes. you say, son, I am so proud of you that in a short period of time, you were able to double your output because that didn't happen by accident. And you didn't just walk out here having not worked on it. You work so hard and look at you, mate, who knows what you'll be able to do by next month. Right. You have answered those two questions, son, you have what it takes and I delight in you. But if they only have one of the two of those, 
they will forever chase the one. So oh, if wow. you're only a dad that says, you know, do you have what it takes? It's always going to be about pushing. Okay, mm. great. You you did four pull-ups. You know, why didn't you do five? I saw you. You could have done five. So now you're just going to chase that. Or contrastingly, if you're only the delight, you know, dad, do you delight in me? It's he was going for four pull-ups, but he only did three. You know, son, it's okay. It mm. doesn't really matter. Like they're just pull-ups. Like you could have done zero and I'd love you just like the guy you were talking about earlier. Yeah. No matter what his son did, he loved him the same. Now you might tangibly, intellectually love him the same, but you can't treat them the same. But as a dad, you've got to check both boxes, you know? That's a wonderful way to put that. And I, I, I never heard it stated that way. I really, really like that. And it's, it's wildly true. It, it's exactly right on. And I think as a dad, I've done both. I've done one, I've done the other, and I've done none at times. Like yeah. it, we, we fail all the time, but man, that that's a really great way to put it because yeah, I can have to say my, my parents did a good job. They always pushed, um, and there were, there were small, there were small victories. There were small, yes, you were good enoughs, but then yeah. there's always, I delight in you because I know there's more, there, there, is. there is more there. And I go, okay. And then, and that really, that mindset just accelerated as I got older because I had the basis of it built, um, to an extent when I was younger, but really, I, it really accelerated probably in my late teens, early twenties. And that's when like the whole world of it got cracked open to the point where, um, I, I literally just believed that I could do whatever I decided to do. Right. And we'll, we'll certainly get more back into the, the knucklehead side of, of life for you at that time period. But that's funny. Whenever I reflect on my own childhood, the only time I got in trouble outside of just like being a, being an idiot or being the class clown or something, if I got in trouble from sports or if I got in trouble from school, it was because I got a B, but I was capable of getting an A. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I got in trouble for that. So if I got B's, I was grounded until I got a B in AP chemistry, which was the best I could do. My parents didn't say a word, right? It's like, right. Hey, that, that was the best you could do. And in sports, my dad didn't care if I went, you know, baseball over four with three strikeouts and two errors in the field. He cared if I sprinted to and from my position. If I ran out every ground ball, he cared if I went back to the dugout and comported myself, you know, as an adult mm. didn't throw my helmet and all that. He didn't care about the outcome or the output. He cared about my level of effort, which, you know, is the only thing that I could control. Uh, now, I feel like, you know, you and I can continue to, to be philosophical and wax poetic about all that because that's that's been great. But let's let's take a nice little circuitous route back to Sorenex equipment here. Sure. Because you got your dad. He's doing, you know, the the playgrounds in the 70s and he's he's doing his best with that. And then he decides to go full bore with uh, the Sorenex exercise equipment and things, things of that nature. When did it become like, okay, this is going to be a thing because like people look at it now and they see the, the gyms where your equipment is, you know, featured, whether it's an NFL team or Joe Rogan's layer or Cam Haynes's layer. And they're like, oh yeah, this is, this is awesome. Jocko Willink. But my goodness, it certainly did not start there. So let's go back to, you know, when your dad finally realized and some of the steps that got him to where it's like, okay, I think this might be a thing. We might have something here. Right. I'd like to say there was like a turning point, but there wasn't. I mean, it was a okay. very linear progression, incremental, you know, late 80, mid to late 80s. We got our first like big college, which was University of Kentucky football. And it was highly customized. It was all the stuff that they said couldn't be done. And we won the job. And then Pops literally had to sell his house to fund uh, the, the raw materials for the steel and then leased his house back from the owner. So he had a place to stay, but knew he needed the money for the raw materials. 
So I saw that sacrifice early on. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is crazy. Um, so that was, that was our kind of our first, oh, you guys could do stuff like not just little high schools and churches and things around your community. Like, oh, you guys are kind of, I wouldn't say a player yet, but Ooh, okay. Soren's doing some interesting stuff. A few years later, University of Tennessee, uh, Bruno Paletta, who was a, a, a legend strength coach and Olympic shot putter. He went with us for his job and he said, well, I love what you did at Kentucky, but I want it better. And that was mm-hmm. the first time that there was a super room. And then another super room came up and said, we want it better. And we're thinking like, that was the best we could do. Like we put her yeah. you know, like, that's the best room. And then and it was like, no, I want it better. And that was the customer pushing and going. Then we realized, oh, there's a market for this. If you're the best. And and sometimes it's okay. How cool can you make it, regardless of you know, you, you know, for those who can afford anything but to lose, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. you know. And then you go, okay, cool. So that was early '90s, and that popped. And you know, every couple of years or every year, there was like one of those jobs that we would just fight our butts off to get. And and we just started making a name underground. You know, in the mid '90s, we had the Chicago Bulls, so they were pretty good during that time. But still, yeah. that was prior to we had no marketing, still didn't have a business plan, no external capital, and no social media because there wasn't really the internet was basically nothing. So no one knew it. We were, and, and I remember late '90s, early 2000s. Someone said, "Oh, you guys are the best kept secret in the strength industry," mm. which is nice but that doesn't get you paid. <laughs> that doesn't, right, that doesn't right. make rent. Being the best kept secret isn't always the greatest thing. Um, so I got here in the 90 in late in 99 and I think just a fresh set of eyes. And I was able to see what dad had been through. And because I was an athlete at the time, I just had a, my finger was on the pulse of training as good as it could have been because that's yeah. all I cared about. So I was able to bring some different perspectives and different contact points and some different just drive because I was trying to solve my problems, not necessarily the problems of the strength world. I was trying to solve my specific training problems, um, which drove a lot of things forward. And that was when, and then, then also it's just bandwidth, right? I mean, when it's only dad, he could only do so much when he has someone else is helping, you know, um, when we really started to catch on because we were working as a team and, and he was able to, you know, he was able to come up with some amazing things because he had me to do some of the grunt work. Yeah. And then, and then we would go back and forth. We were able to really kind of jive. So that was when it really started accelerating. And I would say, um, 2010 to 12, so probably 10 years ago is when it hit hyperdrive. So I really like how you describe something because we live in an era where you go viral. Right. So you're, you, you aren't known for anything. Right. And then you ride down the street on a skateboard singing a song and, you know, drinking ocean spray. And then all of a sudden everybody, you know, that, what was that guy singing Fleetwood Mac? And that song like goes back into the top 10 charts after having been out of the charts for decades. It's but incredible. the guy was a non-entity and now he's an entity. That's the world we live in. And, you know, I've talked about it with this show is like, there's been a gradual, gradual, gradual. Now we kind of have a little bit of a hockey stick yeah. incline for the things that we're doing. But even my 
my wife tells me all the time, she's like, Kyle, not everyone's just going to like all of a sudden be the biggest thing overnight. And it's just like, there's nothing wrong with that gradual improvement because then you have time to grow and you have time to basically kind of coalesce the things that you're yeah. doing into future success. And we'll certainly get more into kind of your athletic endeavors. But one thing I did want to ask you about is everybody knows uh, 10 stories. And especially if you've been to business school, you know, a hundred stories of that second generation business owner that either screws everything up or sends it to the moon. And then it's that third generation business owner that regardless of what happens, they just screw everything up. Right. And <laughs> yeah. so here we are, you're, you're technically, you're the second generation business owner. You're in the business, your dad's still around, still doing some things. Obviously you've seen some stratospheric rise in the last decade, as you've described it, but talk to me a little bit about the pressure of being kind of that second generation business owner running everything. And then let's obviously look out into the future because you, you can't be Bert from Sorenex, you know, the, for the rest of your life, at some point you got to pass the torch. Right. Oh, that, that's a huge part of it. Going back to like we were saying about that, that slow and steady, in my opinion, that, that is, I know that's what we did. So my opinion could be like, well, we did it right. But you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it's like, it's like building a strength base, you know, like our base was so wide. Um, you know, that, that can support a meteoric rise because you have so much a wide base and so much of a, of a body of work, you know, you can look back and go, Oh yeah, they did some really cool stuff. They did Rogan's gym that they go right. And we also invented the landmine 22 years ago. Yeah. We also invented the, you know, fill in the blank, 10 years, 12 years, 18 years. Like that's longer than most of the companies have been around in our industry. Yeah. And, and again, that's not like, Hey, look at us, but it's just going, when you cut in there, it cuts all the way to the bone of who we are. Like, this is what we do. Literally our, our, uh, our, uh, billboard outside. And it just has a picture of a hand lifting a barbell. And it just says, you know what we do. It doesn't even say Sorenex on it. It's a Sorenex barbell. Well, that's it. Like, because I'm not trying to attract every person that rides down highway 20. I'm trying, right. to, I'm trying to let the people that know who we are and what we do, this is where we are. This is, we will be glad to help you. I'm not trying to become a household brand that's, that's blown up viral and all this. The people that really have to win, we want to be their go-to guys, the go-to guys for the go-to guys. And so that's been something that we stay pretty consistent with in our messaging. But going back to like a Rogan, I love Rogan's story. Yeah, he got he sold his podcast for a hundred million bucks. That cat's been on TV for twenty five years. Right, like, he's famous for like five other things. Five other things. If you said ten years ago, like oh Joe Rogan, you're like oh yeah, I know him from those three other things. You know, yeah, right. And and I I will argue, I think in the future, a hundred years from now, he will be known as one of those people that were was super vital in our world during this time of our existence whether it's just for giving people a voice, giving alternate yep. views of voice, whether it's a, you know, a Paul Revere type person, they like, okay, he wasn't actually a government person or a military leader, like, but he was this guy that was doing these awesome things that gosh, without that, all these other things in life wouldn't have happened. So I, I, I have a, the utmost respect for Joe and just what he's done consistently. You look like, oh, in the eighties, you were teaching martial arts. You're yeah. not, you just didn't get into jujitsu yesterday, you know? Right. So that's just an interesting, interesting piece of the puzzle. Um, and I'll be honest, I went on a tirade. I can't remember the second part of your 
question. Oh, I can't either, but let's stay on what you just got through <laughs> talking about. So let's look at, let's look at a Joe Rogan, uh, even a little bit further. So, you know, you, you have a couple of historical corollaries. The one that came to mind as you were talking, it was kind of a Leonardo da Vinci because it doesn't make sense that you can have the number one podcast in the world to be the most sought after and most famous MMA commentator in the world to be top five uh, working comedians in the world right, right. now. Yeah, people oh, forget that also, part. Yeah, and also, by the way, you were a, a good actor on a sitcom, and also you were known for being this crazy good host of a television show on a major network. You, yeah. you can't, how can you be all of those things and, and be that top tier? Yeah, agreed. And I think something that a lot of people don't realize in the multi, multi, multi million dollar hunting industry, he is the number one advocate on the planet for it. Right. Which is, that's why I have to look at, I have to thank guys like John Dudley and Cameron Haynes mm -hmm. who have helped Joe, but Steve Rinella, the meat eater is the guy who got him started. And yeah. so I look at go, gosh, Rinella, like, Hey, we should all send him a thank you letter. If you're a hunter, because he got the most influential person on the planet into what we love to do. And that has right. created so many more people that are enjoying the outdoors from that level, but also just the, the, the capability aspect and things like that. So I, I thank Joe all the time, like, Hey man, like, thanks for getting into hunting. This is like, yeah. you've made it cool to do what I've been doing my whole life. Thank you. This is awesome. Um, but that going back to Joe, I think he has a few superpowers, um, personally and this is just based on my experience with him um he his eq is through the roof yeah. his, his emotional quotient is through the roof his iq is extremely high as well obviously two things he has a steel trap for a mind he doesn't forget anything and okay. he doesn't he doesn't forget he doesn't especially stories he doesn't forget stories but he also is so good at weaving then those stories in later conversations. So he's always, for my assessment, he's always data mining when he's talking to all these super interesting people, he's taking in information and building an enormous database of stories and experiences that, that shape the way he sees the world, which is awesome when you could take in things around you and take those experiences and shift and shift and, and shape your outlook on the world. And you don't have to personally experience that yourself. Right. He's, he has an ability to do that and, and also do it open-minded, but he also can regurgitate those stories verbatim months later. And I realized in talking to him one time, we were just talking about normal stuff and he kind of joked about something and I thought it was hilarious, whatever. It was just in a conversation. I saw him say the same joke in a stand-up a month or two later, and I go, "Oh my gosh, he yeah. was he was working his bit. Yeah, he was the consummate professional working. He was trying stuff out as we were talking, and then on a podcast, I heard him tell my story. He says, "Yeah, a friend of mine," and he just he gave the story like I gave it. I go, "We talked once about that, and months later, he told this story." And he nailed it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you talk to people for hours and hours and hours and hours constantly. And that you put that in a little file to be utilized later in the yeah. perfect conversation. It was later 
the story was kind of tweaked by Snoop Dogg and he posted about, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy took a story from a dude who's a no one out of South Carolina and turned it into boom, boom, boom. And that's his amplification superpower. That's where I think people don't understand how brilliant Joe Rogan is. And they go, oh, I could just do a podcast. I'm like, yeah, um, you also aren't an X-man. And I think Joe is an X-man in some ways. Well, and it's, it's an inquisitiveness that you are given as a gift. Mm-hmm. Can you develop a more inquisitive, creative mind? Of course you can, but it's, you're, you're given that as a gift. I remember being in like fifth grade and, and you know, my teacher told my parents, it's like, your boy's very inquisitive. And I'm like, Oh no, what did I do this time? Like what's inquisitive mean? And it was like, yeah, they, they already knew that. It's like, it's not mm-hmm. good enough to know that it works. You need to know how it works and you need to know how somebody else can, can use that because everyone's got their skill set. Cause I get asked all the time, Bert, they're like, Kyle, I'm thinking about launching a podcast. What do you think? And I'm like, don't. Right. And they're like, what, what, what do you mean? I'm like, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Cause yeah, you can drop, you know, 200 bucks on some, some equipment and, and a camera and a mic and, and plug it in. But it's like, look, if you don't have anything to add to the marketplace of ideas, mm-hmm. if you're just going to be, you know, gathering the data of your two or three other favorite podcasts and then regurgitating it through your voice, like that's not interesting enough to, to build a career on. And it's like, look, are you willing to put out a show a year or a show, one show a, a week for three or four years before you have more than a hundred listeners? Cause right. if you're not, then don't do this because right. some people just plug in their microphone. They're already famous. And Hey, I've got this huge podcast, but you're not them. And so I think the important thing about a Joe Rogan is he has a, a deep level of humility as well to get into things later on in life that he's not good at. So he wasn't mm-hmm. always doing barbell training. He wasn't always doing uh, kettlebell training. That's something he developed later. Hunting was was a skill set that he started developing in his late 40s. And now it's kind of a core part of his life. Uh, you know, access to recovery systems for his body and all that. That was a new thing. But so many guys, they're like, well... I, I just did my last two-a-day football practice in high school. I guess I don't need to work out again for the rest of my life. And it's just kind of like, guys, like you you have to constantly be plugged in to podcasts, to books, to speaking engagements, to continue to develop your brain. But most guys are just like, they're so frustrated they're not Joe Rogan. It's like, well, you're not putting in the work to even be on the same pathway. What are you talking about? Right, right. And, and you know, it's interesting you say that about a podcast. They do whatever and they go be a podcaster. I would say there's very few podcasters that started as a podcaster that are a high-end podcaster now, if that makes sense. They all tend to have done other extraordinary things in life. And I I talked about it at a national convention I was just at the other day, was everyone wants to be interesting. A lot of people. They're like, I want to be cool. I want to be interesting. I want people (laughs) to talk about it. (laughs) They're just not. Well, and here's the main – here's the – I agree, first of all. Not everyone can be interesting or – by definition, that's not there. But one of the biggest caveats or the biggest indicators of being interesting is being interested. Sure. And most people just aren't that freaking interested about what's going on around them. And that's, again, going back to Joe, not to continue to blow him up. That is an interested son of a gun. That guy asked a million and a half questions. Even yep. when you're just like, in his house, like building a weight room from it. He's like, what's this do? What's that do? What, you know? And you're like, oh my gosh, you're just that interested. You're that curious. Yep. And you're, you're gathering information constantly. So if you, if you're super interested and you have a steel trap for a mind and you're a good storyteller, you nailed it. 
yeah. you, you're the orator of the world at that point, you know, and that's, that's the interesting thing that I don't think many people have all three of those skill sets. And if you're just not interested in life, like you're probably going to be bored. You're probably going to be depressed. You're probably that that's something interested in the world is something that I think for mental health, you have to have in many right. ways. Well, and Bert, you have to be you. I remember listening to Joe describe early in his co- comedy career, he had adopted the cadence of another successful comedian mm-hmm. at that time that w- it wasn't him. It wasn't his voice. It wasn't really his cadence. And he was listening to it back and he's like, wait a minute, that's not me. Mm-hmm. And then he started developing his own brand, his own sound, his own style. The same thing is if you try to just hit record and try to talk to your buddy for three hours, like, you know, uh, Dennis Prager has a great rule is he's like, if you want to be in talk radio, put yourself in a room by yourself, hit record and be interesting for three hours Ugh. and then do that the next four days of the week, take <laughs> right. a couple of days off and then come back the next week. Cause that's what it's going to take. You know, you're going to have to be interesting for three hours at a time. Some people just aren't there, but to kind of go back to, to something you were talking about, I have this rule. I don't know that I've ever talked about it on the show. You know, sometimes when you go into a setting, like, so if I'm brought somewhere to speak, obviously there's a lot of eyes on me. There's a lot of focus on me because I'm the guest speaker and, oh, that's the guy that has a podcast show and all that kind of stuff. If I'm meeting someone for the first time, I have a little ticker in my brain. I need to ask them six questions about them and their life before I will answer any questions about me. And so a question could be like, oh, hey, what's your name? Oh, where are you from? And you know, what brings you to this event? Well, well, how'd you get interested in that? You know, and you just, you kind of keep going and you're showing that person, you're, you're practicing being interested in someone other than yourself because we live in the most narcissistic time in history where you only need to be worried about you. And Hey, I can't just hang out with Bert. I got to take a picture with Bert so I can post it online so that I can collaborate with him on Instagram so that I can have all his friends and have all of his influence. You see what I'm saying? And it's just like, it takes you out of your, your own placement of I'm going to focus on me. And yes, ask me questions because I am the greatest person person in this room, obviously, (laughs) but it's almost like practicing humility in a way, but then you do get better at being, you know, genuinely interested in other people. Cause everyone has a cool story. Well, even people that aren't that interesting have some cool part of a story that they've done something interesting in life. Maybe even if this, that they didn't do anything interesting. Well, that's interesting in itself. I can't believe that you hadn't gotten around to do anything cool. And and then the the question is, why isn't that? Why haven't you, what's the failure to launch? Right? Like, so everyone has a story and, but I agree with you. Most people are too narcissistic and too self-centered to give a crap what anyone else is thinking, doing or otherwise. And it's, it's sad in a way. I don't know if it's social media. I don't know if it's just the world. I don't know if it's just humanity. I I, I don't, I don't know the reason. Well, everyone does have a story. I, I thought about a guy that has become a friend of mine that's been on the show. His name's Ray Dorwart. He's a legendary bootmaker, custom bootmaker here cool. in Oklahoma. But if you were to just walk up to him at a donut shop or a coffee shop or something like that, he just looks like an old cowboy. And if you didn't ask him a few questions, he's not going to tell you, yeah, people will pay me 10 grand uh, to make their boots and I have a two-year waiting list. Like no one's going right. to, it's not just going to come out. But talking to that guy when he was on my show, like there were so many cool things about his upbringing. Like he was a real life cowboy in the Dakota and in Wyoming and in Montana. And like, you know, he thought he was going to end up making saddles, but he ended up making boots because you're in them all the time. And, you know, he had a horse, like he was running some cattle and he had a a horse, like, you know, kick back and fall on him 
and like basically he thought he was going to die and he sat there and kind of had this spiritual moment on wow. a trail by himself when he thought he was going to die. And that's just a dude that you would walk by in Oklahoma and just think, ah, yeah, right. there's a guy, you know what I mean? So like stopping long enough to have those conversations are really interesting. So I'm really right. glad we went off on that tangent as well. Real quick, that's what, kinda, what, go, what's, go. Yeah. what's his, uh, what's his boot company's name? What's his so he just, I think he just calls it Dorwart Boots. That's his last name, Ray Dorwart. And right. so like he's been making them for, you know, 20, 30 years. Like I, I can obviously connect you with him as well because like, cool. and you know, whenever I got connected with him, he's worried about the next generation of boot makers because he will have a cattle uh, rancher from North Dakota send all of his hands to Guthrie, Oklahoma to, you know, because he does seven or eight, you know, measurements on each shoe and then he basically, or each foot rather. And then he builds the boot around the specifications of your foot. And what's the job? Like, like 80% of the boots he makes are not for, you know, guys like me that just want to walk around of boots. He's making it for guys that are working that right. need these boots to work. And, you know, he'll do everything on it as custom, every stitch, every, every piece of leather and everything, wow. but that's just what he does. But he wants that next generation of people. Like he talked about maybe trying to start like a school of young kids that want to maybe get into that because there's not a whole lot of Ray Dorwarts just hanging around. You know yeah. what I mean? That's super cool. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I like that you gave him a plug because I like people doing that uh, in that way. Yeah, he, he's a great dude for sure. But I do need to kind of to weave all the way back because you <laughs> mentioned it a couple of times. Dude, I'm enjoying this. This We're having a good time. But obviously, you weren't just a guy that did barbell training. You weren't just a guy that, you know, uh, had some business ideas for dad's business or things like that. You were an athlete that needed to be strong in order to be successful. But I want to go all the way back to college. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because you go to college and you had no athletic prospects for the most part by your own admission. You weren't an, an excellent high school track athlete. You weren't, you know, a sought after athlete when it came to collegiate sports or anything like that. But you went in, in relatively short order, you went from a collegiate partier to a world-class hammer thrower. So <laughs> I know that's a long story, but my goodness, how the hell does that happen? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess all that did happen. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't think of it that way. Uh, but right. I mean, the story is I went to University of South Carolina with no really intent of staying there. I wanted to go to Appalachian State because that seemed like a cooler party school. Again, grew up in the 80s, watching 80s movies. I thought like life was like an 80s movie. That sounded amazing. College sounded like a super fun place to go. Yep. And um, so I went to South Carolina because I was – I think I applied late and I couldn't get at app state. I got in for the spring, but I was like, oh, I'll go to South Carolina. It's 10 minutes down the road. I'll take some classes, blah, blah, blah. But it's in a city. So I'm like, ah, I'm going to just go to the bars a lot and just enjoy not being in the house. This is going to be great. Showed up. I think I drank for six days and partied and rode my mountain bike around and just had this awesome college experience. The seventh day I woke up and I was like, I need to, I need to lift weights. And then that, that, that guilt kind of kicks back. You're like, yeah, yeah but I, I'm not just going to be a stupid party kid. Like I'm going to actually lift weights. Cause I do love that. But yes, I was a crappy thrower in high school, um, throw resin discus and shot put. I was never recruited. I, I sucked. I, I would, I didn't suck. I, I made like regionals and upper state, but like I, I wasn't that great. And, um, so anyway, I go, I call pops. I go, Hey, I, well, first I went to our rec center. Our rec center gym was terrible for all the students. <clears throat> so I knew that we had built some equipment in the football facility and in, in the, at the Williams Bryce stadium. So I said, well, they'll at least have good sore next equipment I could work out on. And so I called pops. I mean, this is prior to cell phones. I called him on my you know, dorm room phone. Yeah. 
and said, Hey, do you know the, the strength coach down there? Do you think you could get me in to work out where I could work out, use our equipment? And uh, he said, sure. Let me give him a call. He calls down there. Rock says, yeah, tell him to come in after the athletes um, work out. And again, I'm 17 years old in college. I'm not paying attention what time he said. I just get done <laughs> eating my burritos. I'm like, well, I feel like working out. Like, let's go. So I go down there. And if you've ever been in a college weight room in August at 2 p.m., it's like Everybody. the bu- busiest Everybody's time there. on the world. Yeah. Right. In, in the first week of school. So it's like all the new athletes, all the freshmen, what worked to my advantage is every you know, a quarter of the population is new, a quarter or more are new. So no one knows who anyone is. Right. And this was before that you had to wear like a South Carolina gear or whatever it was. So like yeah. people are just in whatever they're wearing. So you could like wildly just sneak in. There's no guards. There's no security. You just walk in. So I walked in, I looked around. I was like, yeah, this just looks kind of cool. Walk over to the platform, start doing some cleans. I'm like this is a good time. I'm enjoying myself, which now I think about is it, like, it's wild that this even worked. And, uh, and so I look over and there's some people standing in line and they're doing a, a vertical jump test. That looks cool because, you know, Rocky four was one of my favorite movies and I love all the diagnostics and everything of Ivan Drago. <laughs> and I'm like, this yeah. looks, this looks great. Oh, I get a good test. I think I could jump pretty high. So I walk over, they give me a piece of paper. I'm like, mm, cool. I put my name on it. I measure a jump, you know, it was pretty good. And, uh, gives me the piece of paper back and I walk off and I go, I'm bench pressing. I look over and they're doing body fat testing, caliper time. Like, that looks cool too. It's like, I'm pretty lean. I'll go see what I am. I stand in line like Forrest Gump. I just stand in line, you know, and uh, standing there and I get up to the guy who's sitting in a chair and he had the calipers out. He goes, well, what sport are you? And I was like, oh, sh- you know, shit. Um, well, track and field. And I totally like just because I had done it before. At least I knew I could like talk the part. He said, what events? I said, well, shot put and discus. I'm going to walk on in the spring. Wild lie. Like there's no, I was not going to walk in you know, a narrator. He was not going to walk in on the spring. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, uh, and he goes, Oh, well, how far did you throw? And I'm like, what are we talking? Like, why would this guy be asking me this? He's like the, the fat caliper guy. And, uh, I told him and he was like, I said, I wasn't very good in high school. Like, you know, and he was like, yeah, that's not very good. I was like, yeah, I know. I already told you that's not very good. I, I, I wasn't good. He was like, oh, well, my name is Larry Judge. I'm the throws coach at the University of South Carolina. And I'm like, you've got to be. Like, <laughs> of all the people. Of all the, there's 100,000 people in our city. And the one guy I can't lie to happens to be the guy I walk up to and lie to. I'm like, oh. And he goes, well, okay, well, we start tomorrow. So be out there. And I was like, coach, really, you know, this is a spring sport you know, this is August. I'll see you in the spring thinking I could totally milk this whole thing for a few more months. He'll forget. Like I'm good to go. I got a place to work out. He goes, no son, you're in college. If you're, if you're going to be on the team, you'll be there tomorrow. No, he goes, no, it's, he said, it starts tomorrow. And I said, okay, yeah, coach, I'll try to make it. And I just totally shift. And then he looks at me in the eye. He goes, no, if you're on the team, you will make it tomorrow. And I go, oh, okay. Uh, so I went to get my body fat tested and literally 45 seconds later, I had joined a track team. <laughs> <laughs> that you happens know? to all of us. It, it happens. A unique story. It's, it's, you know, it, it, the, t- the tale is old as time, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So I go back and I finish up some lifting. I'm like, man, this, my head's kind of reeling. I'm like, what the world just happened? So I go back to my, my, my 
dorm. I called my dad and he was like, how'd you work out? I was like, I think I joined the track team (laughs) (laughs) by accident, by accident. And see, he was one of the highest recruited discus throwers in the nation when he got to South Carolina. That's why he came to South Carolina. So like he was a kind of a legend. And so immediately he thinks like, what are you trying to do this for me? Like, what's your, what's your angle with this? And I go, he goes, what are you going to do? I go, I guess I'll show up. I'll go check it out. Nothing, no expectation, had no idea. I didn't want to be an athlete. That wasn't part of the plan, part of the goal. I literally wanted to get a workout in when I was done being hungover. Like that was the whole thing. Um, I showed up the next day, some of the biggest people I'd ever seen in my life. And I thought they were seniors. <laughs> they turned out they were also freshmen. I'm like, I am so screwed, <laughs> you know? And, um, but what did it? I I'd always had a respect for athletes and I always loved the image of an athlete and what a real powerful athlete could be. I was just never that person. And in the first four weeks of training, we would, we would Mac, we would do a rep max every four weeks. And after the first four weeks, I literally got like way stronger. No, it was probably neuro neuromuscular improvements, but I got way stronger in the first four weeks and I go, Oh, this is cool. Yeah. And then four weeks later, it happened again Four weeks, And that, what did we, it was just like that ribbon going up the tree. Oh, I could be better than I've ever been. Oh, I could be better than I've ever been. And every right. four weeks I, I became addicted to, I could be better than I've ever been every four weeks. And I remember leaving, I came into to that year in, in August, 172 pounds, six foot two. So I was pretty thin. And I, I got up to 199 at Christmas break. So within a wow. semester, within a semester. And I remember I was packing to go home for Christmas. I stood up on a chair and I was getting something out of the top of the closet. And I looked across the room, just caught my eye. And I, the, there was a mirror on the wall and I couldn't see my head and I couldn't see my feet. All I could see was like the middle of my body. And I remember going, whoa, yeah. those, are, those legs are big. Like mm. you have a butt now. Like what's going on? Cause I put on 30 pounds almost. And I was like, oh, there's this, like, this is cool. And I remember just like during that first semester, it was like a whole switch flipped. I was on fire for it. I realized now if I put in the work, I got paid for it every time I got paid for it in spades. I loved watching what I could do. I loved being better. Every single day I woke up, I was better than the day before. And that was addictive. That was I. That was the best ride in the park. If you told me college was twenty years long at that point, I'd have signed up for it. I go if this ride continues, I never want to do anything else. And so that became my career, and I was a. I became addicted to the process and also the the payouts. And then of course you go to throw and you throw further and the PRs and like yep. that became all I cared about in life, for the most part. And really school was just my ticket to be able to ride that ride. I hate to say I wasn't a very studious person. I think I got a 1.9 my freshman first semester. My coach almost killed me. Um, <laughs> it's kind of funny. So I come back from Christmas. It's a funny story. So the head fo- head head track coach is there and he comes over and he goes, Soren, get over here. And I was like, oh my gosh, the guy knows my name because I was a walk-on. Like no one knew me, right? Right. He goes, Hey, uh, how's your Christmas? I'm oh, pretty good. You know, he goes, Hey, uh, got your report card. I'm like, you know, Oh yeah. And he goes, well, you got an a, a B, a C, a D and an F. And he goes, are you trying them all out? Like, what are you, <laughs> <laughs> and I go, uh, well, yeah, you know, not too good. He goes, listen, 
And this was probably the first conversation I've ever had with an adult that was, it was probably the most, one of the most important conversations still in my life. And he said, listen, you, we didn't recruit you to come here. He goes, the other teammates, the, your teammates seem to like you. The coaches say you're a pretty nice guy. You're a hardworking kid. I know your dad was a good thrower here, so you have some genetic potential probably. Um, he goes, but we didn't recruit you. He goes, you're not, you, you weren't someone we accounted for. Um, the only two reasons you're on this track team is to throw really far and score, score points at the SEC Conference Championships or get good grades so you bring up the team GPA for the kids that can't. The ones that will score at the SECs, but we need their grade point average, the team grade point average. So you're basically the padding for those guys. They mm -hmm. go, so you either need to get good grades or throw really far. And I, and I go, okay. He goes, so get your shit together or leave. <laughs> hey. And and it and it in eighteen barely eighteen years old to have an adult just look at you and go, get your shit together or leave. And I went, oh, I mean, it was a punch to the chest that I'd never had. Everyone had babied it. Everyone right. was, you're a nice guy, blah, 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 blah. And I always knew how to kind of get around it. And he just said, here is your criteria. Here is your value. You do this, or I don't care if the other girls on the team think you're cute and the guys think you're a nice guy. That is not valuable to me in the least. You yeah. either do this, you do this. If you did both, that'd be great. But currently you're doing none of it. And, and if, you didn't just shatter into a million pieces when he said, I'm sure it wasn't fun to listen to, No, but it, it, it gave you fuel. It you gave me I mean? fuel. It was like, Oh, so I don't have to have another conversation like this. If I change one or both of those things, and then I get to stay here and I get to ride this ride. You just gave me the criteria. Got it. We're crystal clear. And so I loved throwing and being strong. So that of course caught on faster Right. But I will say my last five semesters in college, I was on the Dean's list. I was all SEC athletically and academically and an all American. So once I learned how to win, it was like, Oh, winning begets winning. I don't have to have one or the other. If I could win in life, I know how to win. And this is through a ton of effort and staying right. accountable. Well, and, so, and Bert, that, that was your Robert Frost moment. You know, you have two roads reversed in a yellow wood and you had to choose one. And there are, there are a lot of kids, I would say, especially now that would take that tongue lashing from a coach and they would never come back because yeah. it's like, you don't know me and you don't know my history. And you know, I check these intersectional boxes, so you can't talk to me that way to begin with and all that. It was like, no, you took that and it propelled you. I think I got all this right. A uh, four time all American, you're an sec champion. Like yep. you went from a kid who should have been nowhere near the gym, much less the track team. No. And then you became one of the dominant forces on, on, you know, an SEC track and field uh, team, which is, it, it's not a, a small deal. And so that's, that's an incredible story for you to be able to take that and to be able to use that as motivation and as fuel that pointed you in the right direction. And, you know, maybe the coach knew that that was going to be the outcome and maybe he didn't, maybe he's like, here's a standard and I need people to be above this standard. And if you choose to be below, it that's on you hey i set the rules but i don't get to choose whether or not you follow them like that that's just basically the way you did it yes you're 100 percent right and and i talked to him later and he laughed he was like yeah i didn't really see you turning out the way you did kind of thing you know yeah. but the awesome and i've thanked him every time i've seen him in the last 25 years i go those 
that one sentence, and I'm literally, that being said, I'm probably going to write it in my office right in front of my desk because that still applies. That still yeah. applies to my life, right? If if I don't put out a good product and take care of my people and take care of my community, I need to leave the, leave the industry. And because it doesn't matter what I've done before that our brand has been big or what, like any of that. So that was the first time that it was probably in my entire life, literally in my entire life, that I was given a non-emotional, very clear criteria. This is what you have to do or don't. I'm not in your corner. I'm not across from your corner. I'm just saying this is it. And I think more kids and more people would very much benefit from having that style of, hey, I don't not I don't not want you to win. I don't want you to win. If you're going to be on my team, this is what you got to do. I hope you got what it takes. And Period. I mean, dude, there's so many times in your life where at the time you don't know that this is going to be one of those moments that you're going to be able to look back on mm-hmm. and and be able to build yourself up from there. But you know, it's I forget who said it, but it's like you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards because you know you you go from being you know a non-entity in the athletic world to to being an SEC champion and a four-time All-American, but then you have Olympic aspirations and then that leads to the Highland games. But let's say with the Olympics first, because there are a lot of people, you know, when you grow up watching the summer Olympics, there's a lot of kids that think, Hey, I'm going to develop and, you know, be an Olympian someday. And they, they don't really realize what that means. And they don't really realize, you know, the, the track that you have to go on and the sacrifices that you have to make, but you're done as a, a, as a thrower in college. And now you're looking at being an Olympic athlete. So take me through that. Yeah. Well, it early happened. I think in college, because of the level that we competed at at the NCAAs, and my roommate in college as a freshman was an Olympic shot putter for Canada. So what I was able to see the next level, first, I, I met all Americans at South Carolina. I go, whoa, you're an all-American. What does that mean? Because I knew it sounded awesome. And so I decided as a freshman, I go, I will be one of those one day. Whatever that is, I will be one of those one day. And then I realized when I trained with these people every day, the mysticism of the whole thing started falling away. And I go, Oh, it's just performance based. You're not a magician. You don't have an X factor. You don't have all these other things. You're just, you're genetically gifted. You're talented and you work really freaking hard. But if I outwork you every day in the weight room and every day in the field, and I out effort you, I could catch up. I could eventually catch up. So my first goal was be all American. First goal was score the sec. Then it was, go to the NCAA, then it was being all American. And I would just chip off these, these, these waypoints. And then while I was doing that, I was living with an Olympian and there were other Olympians on my team. So that I want to go, Oh, so Olympians aren't just those things we watched on TV when we were kids, these magicians, these super, super freaks. Now are they super freaky? Yeah. in the grand scheme of things, but sometimes ignorance is bliss and it's better to be a little delusional. And I go, huh, I see Brad Snyder every day. We're roommates. I gave him a ride to class every day. We train to get, we spot each other every day. He gets to go to the world championships and the Olympics because his ball falls further from his feet than everyone else's when he throws it. Mm. But I could change that. I could get closer to that. And then it was, it was funny. I, I've cited it before. In the mid nineties, there was a movie with Anthony Hopkins called the edge. And uh, he, he has the thing. He says, what one man can do, another can do. And I just always listen to that. I go, okay, well, if this guy can make the Olympic team and he's a man just like I am, hmm. he has one head, 
He has two hands. He has like all the same kind of tools. Then all that's separating us is time and effort and maybe a little luck here and there, but there's nothing that he possesses that I don't. Now, reality of it is like there's sometimes people just possess special white fast twitch yeah. fibers or whatever it may be. There are there are only a few Francis and Gandus in the world. You know what I mean? There's <laughs> just a few of them. But yeah. there's people that overachieve based on they don't believe that's the case. And so right. my thought was, hey, I've already seen these wild things happen in my life from being an un recruited nobody of an athlete to being a team captain sec record holder i did that in five years so who's to say when is this curve going to flatten out i don't know but i'm going to keep my foot on the gas as long as possible and see what happens so i went after the olympic dream and that was a five-year period looking back i could have done things better in some ways it's also hard having a full-time 50 hour plus week job while also trying to be trying to basically take over Sorenex and do Sorenex while trying to be a professional athlete is relatively difficult as in impossible. So, but what I later, the joke was is because I was going after with such fervor, the athletic world, I was getting a master's class on training and and the contact basis I had because I was around the brightest minds in training because that's what I loved for 10, 12 years. I was able to pull that back into my vocational world literally in seconds. And I would go and train somewhere and go, Oh, I see this, this guy doing this rear leg elevated uh, squat, but it's on this special box. Well, that box isn't a sustainable thing to make. So I invented the single leg squat pad. Hmm. Well, that was not for, public consumption. That was because I wanted to do that exercise. Right. You know, so those things, like I wouldn't have come up with those things if I was just someone said, all right, Bert, well, we need to make some money. So I need you to make a product (laughs) that costs $299 that we could sell everywhere. Like that's never been the thing. It was okay. I want to do this movement with a barbell as I train for the 2000 Olympic trials. So we built the landmine. And then a year later, people go, hey, what's that thing? I go, oh, that's the thing I just trained for for hammer throwing. They go, well, can I buy one? I go, well, yeah, sure. And so that was that's where I still have such a passion for the training and the competition, specifically track and field of what it did for me because it was more of a driver than it was really. I never re- reached the level that I wanted to reach as an Olympic athlete. Like that wasn't that was a goal. I never got there. But the process, the joke is the process is what mapped out pretty much all the success in my life. Well, a lot of people said, trust the process. That's a quote that everybody's familiar mm-hmm. with. But uh, one thing, and I may be getting the stories mixed up, so correct the record if I'm wrong, but you end up going from you know your Olympic dreams and, and pursuing that to pursuing the Highland Games. And I think yes. most of the people in our audience are familiar with the Highland Games and some of the strongman competitions mm-hmm. over there and the kilts that are worn. And, and you know, kind of it's, it's this really cool thing that if you ever have the opportunity of, and if you're over there to go watch it, you definitely should. That's a bucket list sports item oh. for me to go and watch something like that. But yeah, I think I remember this right, but I think you were competing in the Highland Games and then you were being introduced to somebody else or somebody, some conversation was happening and you were introduced as, yeah, this guy would be pretty good if he tried. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. which you got to look yeah. at that a couple of different ways. You got to look at that as like, well, that sucks to be introduced that way uh, because it's like, you know, I, I don't want to be known for something that's like negative or something that's like, hey, I'm, I'm not living up to my potential. But at the same time, you're like, wait a minute. 
this guy saw enough in me to kind of like rib me a little bit to be like, yeah, this jack wagon would, would actually like treat this like it's a real thing. He could be world-class. So do I have that story pretty, pretty yeah, well straight? That, that's pretty, that's pretty darn close. It was, it was uh Casey Cummins at the Savannah games. And mm-hmm. so I got out of, <clears throat> out of Olympic track and field and I'd done a couple Highland games cause they were kind of fun. I do them like in the fall and like, ah, they're cool. They're sort of throwing there. I'd train for like a week beforehand just to get familiar with the implements. I'd go to the game. I'd have fun. I'd do one boom, be done. It was a cross training. Well, afterwards, after I retired from after 2004 Olympic trials, I think in 2005, I was like, ah, I want to try some, some games again. So I, I went to a couple of games. I kept getting second in the overall. I'd break like two or three field records and like, of course, like the hammer throw and things like that. And yeah. then I would get my butt handed to me on two or three events that I didn't practice. And I didn't train. And, but I always would get, we'd get second and I would go, meh, whatever. I don't really practice this. Like it's kind of fun. And I went to this game and I think I got second at that one as well. And I taught the athletic director as Casey comes and he goes, Oh, Hey, Oh, you're, I said, Hey, you know, my name is Bert Soren. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. He goes, Oh, you're Soren. I go, yeah. He goes, Oh, you're the one they said would be good if you would try. <laughs> and I was just like, wait, what? So yes, there was that part in there. It goes, Oh, cool. People think I would be good and I'm good enough. That's cool. Comma. If I would try. Yeah. And I just, and I, it stung so badly because I go, wow, I've made a brand of my, for myself unknowingly that I'm the guy who doesn't try and who I'm talented and I'm wasting my talent. And I was like, okay. And so I asked him that day, I said, what's, the, what's the big game that everyone wants to go to in this sport? He goes, well, this year it's North versus South. So he goes, we pick a team of five people to, in the North or the South to go against five people from the North. And we have a big shootout in Louisiana and it switches places. And I go, how do I get on that team? And he goes, well, you have to, it's picked by me, but you have to be dominant, blah, blah, blah. Here's your marks. And I said, what marks do I have to have? And he goes, well, you big, the, I said, gotcha. I'm going to keep up with you. And I went home and, and I was on fire because I couldn't get that out of my head. You're the guy that would be good if you would try. And I was 57th in the nation that week. And I literally every day I would take the every single day is I would take the database, the national database, and I would find what event I was worst at. And that's when I came up with the, the, the terminology I called a hunt weakness. And I hunted my weakness and I would find what am I worst at? What will, what mark will it take to get in the top 10? And I would write that down and I would go out and practice and do everything I possibly could until my implement would go past the top 10 number. Yeah. And, I, and I would go and I would just pick it off. I'd pick off my weaknesses constantly and I would self-assess and pick my weaknesses. And I think I, I know that that next year I won the amateur world championships. So I went from 57th in the nation to first in the world and turned pro. And I think I had 57, but in like five weeks, I went to like third or fourth in the nation. Mm. And I just was on a tear and I got to compete at the North South games. And the next year I got to p- compete as this team captain for the U S team against us Scotland. But that brought me right back into my wheelhouse of, Oh, care about this more than anything and put everything on the line and hunt weakness and go after it and, and realize what your potential could be at this or, leave. Yeah. Just stop doing it because you're, you're, you're disrespecting the people. I mean, I'd feel bad if I was a third place guy that got beat by a guy that didn't try. 
screw yeah. that. Like, you know, it's like, I, I can't be, I don't want to be that guy to that guy, but I also don't want to carry my family name on my back as being the guy who doesn't try. So that was a wake up call to me of like, Oh, there's still more fight in you. And, yeah. and you, you still could, you still could go on this adventure again. And all of a sudden as a 27 year old, I was thrown right back into being a 17 year old. And it was like, Oh, I could get better every day. Right. And it and was awesome. That's just an invaluable thing though. That's another time in your life where you took words by somebody else and you mm -hmm. use them as fuel and you didn't use them as an excuse. Again, we're marinated in this victimhood mindset and modernity to where if, if you don't do well, it's because someone else did something to hurt you. It's not that you, you didn't, you know, see your potential or you didn't like exceed it or you weren't, didn't try. It's none of that. It's the world's against you for some odd right. reason. Like there's this enemy in the ether. That's just only going to focus on you. So I really enjoy uh, kind of getting into that. Um, there's one thing I wanted to kind of go back to with, mm -hmm. with Sorenex. So you, you've got all the athletic endeavors, all those different things. You obviously were a collegiate athlete, but one thing that you never were, were was a member of the United States military. And Correct. for me, uh, being in my mid thirties, I get accused, I guess you could call it of having been a veteran or something like that, because it's like, because of the life that I live, because of the workouts that I do, because of, you know, the, the things that I support with my time and with my money, it's things that veterans would do, but that was never the track for me. I got a scholarship to go to school and I immediately got out and started working. I never went to the military. It's one thing for me that I'm always kind of like, man, I kind of wish I would have done that, but my whole life would be different. I wouldn't have my wife. I wouldn't have my sons. Same. Like I wouldn't live in the city I live. You know, it is what it is. God put me exactly where he needed me so that his, his will could be done. But for you, obviously there's tactical gear that Sorenex makes. You make this not for, you know, guys to look cool at the shooting range, but guys that are going down range, like in war, making stuff that's not going to break on them and stuff that they can actually use. But the same thing for you, you do a lot for veterans and for veterans organizations and for the active duty community, but you yourself are not a veteran. So we're kind of similar in that way, but I just wanted to kind of tee you up to talk about that a little bit because like, I see that as a regret, but as a lot of really, you you know, veterans that I respect have told me, they're like, Kyle, you're a great American doing what you do. I happen to, to serve down range and that's what, that's what I had to do. You're doing what you have to do on this side. So, so go for it. Yeah. I, I will mimic that, uh, you know, that exact same feeling. I I've always had a, an affinity for the military. I just didn't have, my granddad served and you know, I'm, I'm an only child and my dad's an only child. So, and he didn't serve at the time. Uh, he actually broke his leg in a motorcycle accident that as he was basically getting drafted for Vietnam. So, I mean, we didn't have a lot of that in our life. So I honestly didn't know how you even got in the military. Like I thought yeah. it was super cool. I'm just like, I don't know. Do they, do they just come to your house one day and grab you? Like, how does this really work? <laughs> you know? And I was an idiot kid. So you just don't know. And then, you know, then once the athletic bug, overtook me that was a done deal until i was probably 30 years old and i'll be honest though the a lot of my good friends are in the military or were in the military that is a regret in some ways that i wish i would have served our country in that way and i've had but i've had those same people tell me they go no bert like what you've done and what you've created in your community and the the assets and the things like you are serving our country you're serving us in that way yeah. We're glad that you did what you did and, and they're happy for me. They said, you know, you're, you're, you're running an American brand that is supportive of the military that gives us opportunity and stuff like that. So I could, I could look at it now and go, okay, I, I did the path I was supposed to do. Cause 
everything would be different. There wouldn't be a sore next now if I was yeah. in the military. Like, and I'm not saying that would be the end of the world. It's just, it would be different. It would be mm-hmm. a, it'd be a different deal. Um, so I'm happy to work alongside of the, those men and women. Um, but I make, uh, zero, uh, inferences that I was in the military or, or um, any of that. I might look like it because of whatever, because I dress in, you know, tan and green a lot because I'm just not a flashy guy. <laughs> like I just, yeah. I like, I like being able to hide if I want to, <laughs> you know? Well, I, I think that's a good thing for a lot of people in my audience as well. Cause there's a lot of veterans, a lot of active duty that listen to this, but then a lot of guys as well that, Hey, not serving in the military doesn't mean you don't get to serve your nation. And it doesn't mean you don't get to serve those of the, who have served. And so there yes. is a role for you to play. Like I grew up in Lawton, Fort Sill. And so like, you know, there was a lot of military in my town. And so when one of our soldiers didn't come back from Iraq, that was a time for the community community to come around that family and, you know, who's going to take care of the lawn and who's going to, you know, make sure the kids get to soccer practice Like who's going to do the mm. things to help out this single mother. Now, those are things that like, you're not serving, like you're, you're not, you know, filling up canteens for people or, you know, cleaning blood out of Humvees, but you're serving in, in, oh, in yeah. a different way, but you're still serving. Um, I know we're kind of winding to a close here, but I would be remiss if I didn't at least throw some hunting questions out there at you. So <laughs> you and I talked a little bit off air about some hunting, some excursions that you're looking to go on some stuff. I'm going to be going on here soon, but I'm, I'm curious for you. Did you grow up hunting? Is this something that you've developed as an adult? Because, you know, yeah. I'm learning, you know, in my thirties, how to hunt so that my boys can kind of grow up being around hunting. And then just kind of tell me about how the stuff that you're doing with Sorenex and your barbell training and all that, how that basically gives you a direct tie into some of the hunting that you do. Right. That's a good question. So yeah, hunting was probably my first love. I know it was prior to strength conditioning. I always thought big, strong people were cool, but hunting was something that I always hunting the outdoors, just since I could remember, I thought it was great. Um, that was really what I did a lot in high school. So I didn't do a lot of sports. I hunted and fish because as an only child, you could do it as much as you want. Uh, You don't have to have anyone to throw a ball at you or defend you or whatever. You could just go sneak around the woods and learn from the game and stuff like that. So that always, that was always a peaceful thing for me. It, it would slow things down and make me present. And so I've talked about before, presence is something I look for, look for in my life, and I'm not good at it. I'm generally a forward thinker. As I'm a planner, I'm a dreamer, which is always forward. Um, but I found that hunting and heavy weights, generally, I could be very present for it because I have to be. And so that's where that addictive quality of that is. Like I've said before, 500 pounds in your back is trying to kill you. So you got to be present, right? Yeah. And so whereas like, eh, if it's 225, it's just kind of a pain in the ass. It's just mm-hmm. on my back. It's like, okay, whatever. But 500, now it's fun because now we got to be here, you know? So I, I grew up hunting. That was something that my dad always instilled in me. And, and I think the biggest part of that <clears> – <throat> that I learned early on was that criteria and that emotionless, uh, outcome scenario, meaning which I learned at eight years old, if I went out and pops put me in a deer stand and gave me a rifle and I mean, and it rained and I didn't bring my raincoat, I was getting wet. He wasn't coming back early because he thought I was wet. That was up to me as a man to bring my stuff, you know, to be prepared. If, if, you know, he might say, Hey, let's look like it's going to rain today. That was it. There, yeah. there, there is, I had to take that information and go, ah, 
army poncho, probably a good thing to put in my pack. And the times I forgot it, which of course I did because I was a kid, you sit and you freeze your ass off in the rain and you, your puddles in your pants from, you know, wet going down your back. And you're just sitting there and you're like, Oh, you're looking at your little watch just fogging up. Cause you're so wet. And you're like, Oh, I have three more hours of this. Yeah. And pops is not coming back because I was told the criteria that was going to occur. So you learn really fast. Like it's no one's fault, but mine, the, the weather doesn't hate me. Dad doesn't hate me. It's just, it's going to do what it's going to do. And I better be prepared for that. So that taught me redundancies. That taught me planning. That taught me how can I carry the least amount of things that have the most uses for them. So then you start thinking divergently of the whole idea of what can use something for what it can be, not for what it allegedly is. And so that builds creativity, that builds problem solving, that builds divergent thinking all things that I used in my vocation 25 years later to build weightlifting equipment, because I would look at something for what it could be for, but not what it was. And so I think those early days of having to figure that stuff out, not being coddled was huge, absolutely vital. And it was so cool that it was, you know, what I heard the other day, they say, well, Hey, remember when you're hunting, the game gets a vote, you know, you could do. And John Dudley told me the other day, he goes, Hey, just so you know, everything you do right is only 25% of the outcome of, of hunting. 75% of it, you have zero control over. So if you look at it, you go, okay, if I only get 25% to maybe make this work, give yourself the highest probability. You better be dialed in those 25% because in that 75%, it's, it's, it's whether it's the game. Maybe that deer just decided not to walk that way today. You didn't do anything yep. wrong. He just didn't decide to go that way. So you start realizing I have a very finite amount of chances to make this work. So if that's the case, I better be dialed because I don't want to piss a chance down my leg because I didn't have my stuff together. And now all of a sudden my success potential goes to 10% versus 25 because I wasn't put my stuff together. So I learned that early on. Dude, there, there are endless life lessons from hunting. I'm discovering as I get better at it. And just, you you learn a lot from your failures as well. And oh. also, every time I'm about to take a shot, I think of that one animal that I wounded and never found. Oh, I, yeah. I think about that animal more often than I probably should. But that always makes me, okay, got to make sure I've got my rifle ready to glow, that it's clean, that I'm sighted in, that yep. I don't rush my shot. If I don't have a good shot, I don't take the shot. Like I'm not going to try to get lucky because I wounded an animal because I rushed a shot. We never found it. And that animal probably met a very, very painful and long demise. And that's my fault. And so yep. that's just one lesson. But imagine learning those lessons as a kid and you're not going to be able to maybe connect the dots to that one time when you're in the deer strand getting wet to you preparing for a meeting before you walk into it when you're 45, but man, it's just there. It's a part of who you are as a person. Right. So I'm, I'm a big time advocate for people getting into that and, and building that out, especially if you have, you know, kids that, that you want to get into that as well. Mm-hmm. But Bert, we could talk about a whole lot more stuff, but there's a, there's a segment that I like doing towards the end of my show. If you still got a, a little bit of time, of course, this is my lightning round segment. Okay. Okay. It's called, what would you say to someone that said, Oh boy. And then I will fill in the blank, <laughs> but here's the deal here. We have rules for this. Okay. I'm setting the standard here. Okay. No matter what I say, you have 30 seconds maximum to give me your answer. So this is meat and potatoes only. I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said, fill in the blank. You give me your answer. You up for it? I'm not smart enough for it, but let's go. Let's figure it out along the way. <laughs> what would you say to someone that said, Bert needs to shave? 
No. That's a good answer. I mean, like, I mean, <laughs> well, at what point? Okay, so well, I, I, I have seconds left. Uh, I might agree with you. Uh, I'm not saying it's a great idea. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I like it in its current iteration. I shortened it so it's a little bit safer, but I enjoy it. And if they don't, if they want to shave, they should shave. Yeah. It's not going to get wrapped up in a barbell right now. So you're good to go. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, I can't afford to build out a home gym? Not everyone can. I'm sorry. That, yep. that is, we're not made for everyone. We try to help as best we can, but we're not going to lower our standard. I would rather someone save up and get the best stuff they could afford, whether it's Sornex or not, than buy trash because you're, it never pays off buying trash. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, there's no such thing as a third generation successful company? I tend to agree with them and I want to try to do what I've done every other point in my life is, is overproduce of ex expectations. So I'm going to work on my end. See, you're doing just fine. You were giving yourself no credit <laughs> before. Now look at you. You're doing amazing. All right, let's keep going. What would you say to someone that said meat is murder? Yeah, it is. You have to kill stuff for meat. And it, depending on how you choose to call murder, um, you could be part of the the life cycle. I'm a part of the life cycle. I have a set of um, emotional abilities as well as skill sets that, that allow me to be a part of that process closer to the source than most people. But if you if you eat meat in any way or, or buy any type of leather, you're a hypocrite. You're part of the cycle, whether you want to be or not. What would you say to someone that said, I would work out, but I'm afraid of getting hurt? Being weak is more painful and, and a higher probability of getting hurt. Find someone who could teach you properly, slow cook it, try to be be strong for a long period of time, and, get, and don't worry about taking a long period of time to get there. If you can move the ball one inch down the, down the road every day, you're moving the right direction. All right, a few more left. What would you say to someone that said, Americans shouldn't be allowed to compete in the Highland Games. It's for Scots only. <laughs> I know you've heard that before. Uh, yeah. Well, I will say Americans are really good at it, though. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they do say that. Well, uh, I think the sport dies if it only stays in, in one country. And I think Americans have done a lot to promote that whole sport. And uh, we let the Scots in the uh, the Greek Olympics. So, hey, and look at it this way: Imagine if uh, Americans didn't let anybody else play baseball. Like, think of all the great Dominican, Cuban, oh. Japanese players that we've had. Like, it would be silly it's to basically just the, the the majority of the major league baseball are from those other countries. So, yeah, it they're, wipes they're really out good at it. The, yeah, it wipes out a lot of Cooperstown. All right, a couple more left. These what would you great. say to someone that said you shouldn't strength train after the age of forty? It's too dangerous. I would say that's the most important time in your life to strength train. That is when you're going to have the most benefits over what your basal level of fitness and strength would be. I think you could change more things at your life at 40 and above, and you could be stronger actually than any other time in your life at 40 and above. You had the most benefits you'll ever have strength training. You're missing the boat completely. If you don't do it. All right, Bert, we've been everywhere in this conversation. I got <laughs> one question left for you. What would you say to someone that said, I'm just too busy to exercise? Cut something else out of your life. You're not prioritizing. Bert, that is my bugaboo for people. You have guys that are like, oh, I've got a family, I've got a business, whatever. I can't really work out right now. Well, it's like, okay, you're getting the time now, but you're deleting 10 years off the end of your life, you know, assuming you don't get hit by a bus or attacked by a pack of wolves. So as long as you're okay with that, you know, uh, that trade, go for it. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. It's it's a quality trade. And, and uh, you know, I haven't really got to train too much in the last month because I've been hunting. And, and if I haven't been hunting, I've been working. If I haven't been working, I've been spending time with my family and sleeping. I prioritized, but I know that next week I'm starting hardcore again because I trained up for this part of the season and I knew I could coast it during that time because when you sleep five hours a night for 50 straight days, it's, uh, you know, probably an additional stressor of heavy squats isn't a great plan. Hey, but you've, you've built a life of resilience. And so it's that ability to go back to your base Mm -hmm. and to build back off of that. You might come off a little bit on your cardio. You might come off a little bit on your strength, but you can build yourself back up. You're not having to just completely, you know, erase the whiteboard and then start over. So, but man, we've covered so much ground in the show. I really appreciate all the time and all the stories and all the different rabbit trails we went down, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I just very much appreciate you letting me come on the show and, and the messaging that you're you're putting out there and what you're doing for men is absolutely vital. I think it's one of the most important things we could be doing today in our society. For all you guys listening out there, thank you for, for supporting the show and uh, please keep your eye on the ball and keep your eye on, on what really matters in this. That's a great word. Bert Soren, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, Kyle. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Bert Soren. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got three links for you today. I've got a link to Bert's website and his Instagram, but also a link to the Sorenex website. Guys, they have tons of gear and tons of amazing stuff on that website. So go there and check it out. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.